welcome to the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for Friday, June 4th. I'm Andrew Walworth. It's probably not going to be a good week when 10,000 of your emails are handed over to the National Press Corps. And if you're Anthony Fauci, author of the emails in question, it has made for a very rough couple of days. Reporters obtained his emails through a Freedom of Information Act request, and the trove has raised troubling questions about what Fauci knew, when he knew it, and whether what he said publicly reflected what he knew privately. Also this week, New Mexico held the first special congressional election of the Biden presidency, a race to replace Deb Holland, who resigned to join the Biden cabinet. It was a blowout win for the Democrats, so what, if anything, can be learned from the results? And despite the big victory in New Mexico, some think a middle-class rebellion is already shaping up against what many see as progressive overreach on the part of the Democrats. In Washington, it certainly has seemed like the energy is on the left, as people say around here. But is there a potential backlash if progressives go too far? Joining me to sort through all of this are some of my colleagues from Real Clear Politics. Carl Cannon is Washington Bureau Chief. Eric Felton is National Correspondent for Real Clear Investigations. And Sean Trendy is National Elections Analyst. So, Eric, let's start with these emails. What do they tell us about Dr. Fauci's handling of the coronavirus? And do they shed any light on how people view the so-called lab leak theory versus the natural transmission theory of how this whole thing got started? Well, I think one thing to to start with will be uh, Anthony Fauci's own defense of himself in this, which is he he said, uh, if you look at all of the emails that have been released, the one thing you don't see in those emails is Trump hatred. And so he's sort of saying that the emails at least show that he wasn't acting in a political way. But I think the, the things that have gained the most attention this last week have been twofold. One is this um, email in which Fauci is saying that you don't need to wear masks, uh, masks don't do anything, and then people pointing out, well, then we've been on mask patrol for a year, uh, what gives? That is, again, not necessarily that problematic because around the same time that Fauci sent that email, um, he was on 60 Minutes. They they didn't show it on the full program, but they showed it on the 60 Minutes overtime that uh, Fauci was making the same claims about masks, which is they really don't protect you. They may protect somebody else from a particularly large droplet or globule or whatever somebody might cough up. So that leaves as the particularly problematic issue and the one that has the the longest term, I think, investigation to be done is this question of did the virus occur naturally or was it something that people were working on for better or for worse in a laboratory in China, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, that escaped. And this has been something that was clearly entertained by people in government, Fauci himself included. But had, we've all been told for a year that to even suggest such a thing is to peddle um, debunked conspiracy theories. And um, I think that this is now going to be a twofold investigation. One, the renewed investigation into where the virus came from, and two, a sort of investigation into the um, effort to squash down any suggestion that the virus was anything other than naturally occurring. 
So, Carl, this is what Fauci himself had to say this week about the question that Eric just raised. He said this on one of the morning shows, quote, The idea, I think, is quite far-fetched that the Chinese deliberately engineered something so that they could kill themselves as well as other people. I think that's a bit far out. So he still seems to be throwing cold water on the lab leak theory, even as it gets discussed more seriously in the press. So what do you make of the press's handling of this story? And is Fauci going to survive this? Well, I don't know if he's going to survive it, but, uh, you know, he's 80. He, he could retire. Now, he has a big book deal. I think he'll be okay. Um, but, Andy, you know, if you think about that, if you parse that statement of uh, Fauci's, nobody's saying that the Chinese deliberately engineer this to kill their own people. That's not quite what they're saying. They're saying that this thing was an industrial accident that escaped from the lab while they were doing research. I've looked at these emails and I haven't seen all of them yet. I haven't gone through all of them, but you know, there's no, what's that other cliche we use? There's no smoking gun. There's nothing there that makes Fauci look like a liar or a fraud. He clearly was trying to manage uh, expectations and manage Americans' behavior. And if you look at what's gone on the last year and three months, we, we needed some managing, you know, early on the established, the medical establishment and the media establishment decided that Americans couldn't handle this uh, if this came from the Wuhan lab. So they pissed all over that. Uh, It was obvious, always the most obvious explanation. And, and, and I, I, I think that was a mistake. I don't, I blame, I don't know who I blame more, the scientists, the media, I go back and forth, but you could sort of pinpoint the Lancet is the, the, the British medical journal is where these two where these two meet. It's a journalism outlet and it's the medical establishment. And in, on February 19th, the Lancet uh, wrote, uh, the, the Vanity Fair has a nice piece on this, uh, you know, that they put out a public a public statement, Lancet published, uh, roundly rejecting the, the, the hypothesis that it could have come from the lab, equating it with xenophobia and, you know, climate denialism. It was signed by 27 scientists, a statement that expressed, quote, solidarity with all scientists and health professionals in China, end quote, and adding, quote, we stand together to strongly condemn conspiracy theories suggesting that COVID-19 does not have a natural origin. Well, I submit to you that that's not a scientific statement at all. That's a political statement. That's not even how scientists are supposed to think, let alone speak. Vanity Fair says that, described The Lancet as one of the most respected and influential medical journals in the world. And I think that's half right. It's influential, but I don't respect it, and I respect it less now. And so, you know, Fauci's part of the establishment there. We, he's been the face of this, and, we, and, and he's a polarizing figure. I happen to like him, and, re, and I do respect him. But he's the face of this idea that the American people are children, you know, that we can't handle the truth. And so I think... You know, that that's the bigger picture here. And I think that's being exposed for what it is, which is counterproductive. So, Sean, what are the, what are the politics of this? How does Biden come through this? Um, what happens next? You know, Biden's been president for, what, all of four months? So I don't know how much of the cover-up that occurred in 2020 can really be laid in his feet. Um, and I shouldn't even call it a cover-up. I mean, I, I think... I don't quite agree with Carl that it was that it's the it was has always been the Occam's razor uh, explanation. We've had plenty of uh, viruses that have crossed over from animals, and and most epidemics have been quickly tied to 
uh, a host organism. Uh, so I think that was probably the prior to start with. What was wrong was just dismissing this out of hand uh, as some kind of crackpot conspiracy theory, given you know what was located in the city that there was the outbreak. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I, I agree with Carl about the Lancet. I mean, people forget that's where the, you know, the famous vaccines cause autism article was originally published uh, that had the good sense to be retracted, but it's not like they have a sterling track record here. The big picture take on the Biden administration is that they're handling Biden real, pretty well, which is that he's kind of like a grandfatherly figurehead who doesn't uh, get himself wrapped up in the muck. And I think on this, he'll give some mealy-mouthed statement on this, science is evolving, blah, blah, blah. It it didn't happen on his watch, which I think most people get, and and politically he'll move on. Eric, do you think that's what's going to happen? I mean, this is a pretty big deal if it turns out that there was a lab leak. I mean, this has implications for relations with China. This has implications for the NIH. This has pretty far-reaching implications for how we sort of navigate the next pandemic, for that matter. Right. And I, I think the the essential issue with how one deals with a future pandemic is transparency and truth-telling. What we see, and, and this is something that Carl touched on, is this sort of treating the public like children. I think what we also saw was an effort to manipulate the public's behavior. Um, and this is whether you look at people as children or as full-blown rational agents. Um, one of the things you saw with the original sort of dismissal of mask wearing as being effective, Fauci has talked about how, well, that was because we thought we were going to run out of masks and we needed to make sure we had enough masks you know, for hospital use. And so we told everybody that wearing a mask didn't make any difference. Um, that to me, which, and that's been out for a long time, um, that to me is, is hugely problematic, which is you're telling a falsehood to the public because you want them to behave in a certain way um, and to behave in a certain way that, you know, you now maintain was contrary to the best interests of people's individual health, if you will. And, um, you know, wouldn't it have been possible to say masks might help, but, um, you know, we're running short of them. So, you know, that politically would have been hugely problematic. So you have people doing things that are not telling the truth to the public uh, in a way to both manipulate the public and to, you know, sort of cover your own political backside. I, I think the other issue that's going to be um, a long-term um, issue out of all of this is, you know, the media question, and in particular, the big tech social media question. It's just recently that Facebook um, put out this really remarkable statement, quote, in light of ongoing investigations into the origin of COVID-19, and in consultation with public health experts, we will no longer remove the claim that COVID-19 is man-made from our apps. Um, a a straight-out statement that basically any question about this issue has been censored in the extreme by one of the main ways people get their news. And uh, I think that this is probably the biggest thing 
to to come of this uh, is, I think, this issue of um, you know big tech censorship. So look on the on the Fauci emails real quick. My first reaction to these emails is they're actually a little bit exculpatory because they suggest that as of fri- of February of 2020, Fauci actually believed that masks didn't do much good uh, against COVID. Uh, you know, our our understanding of the virus and how it's spread has evolved over time. But I was actually kind of surprised to see him say, "No, I really believe this. This isn't just a noble lie uh, to to save our health professionals." You know, I, I think. And I, in an ideal world uh, where everyone's well informed and pays close attention to the news uh, and everything, the the Facebook big tech censorship issue uh, would be a, a bigger issue. Uh, because I agree, like it's not just that they censored this story or that they censored the Hunter Biden laptop story. The whole's greater than the sum of its parts, right? And all the it's kind of like the New York Times, like they make a bunch of little errors, but they all point the same direction and it points to something bigger. Um, I'm just not sure outside of kind of conservative, hardcore people that that many people are tuned in. Um, but I'd like to be wrong on that. Carl? Well, look, there's nothing embarrassing that these guys are wrestling with a year ago, more than a year ago, February 2020, what causes the virus, how it's spread, how to treat it. Francis Collins said something um, very frank early on. That's uh, that's Tony Fauci's boss. Said This virus is doing things we've never seen before. The libertarians, and I count myself as one who said, ah, the government is making you wear masks, and they're not sure that this prevents things. Or they told us not to wear masks, then they told us to wear masks. I mean, look, again, you know, I don't think the government should treat people like children, but I don't think people, adults should act like children either. <clears throat> we we were learning more and more as this thing went on. Remember, originally, you had to take your Amazon packages and put spray on them and wash them and leave them in a darkened garage for three days before you're supposed to touch your own food. I mean, look, people were trying to figure this out. So some of these things, I I think it's a distraction. I I don't think we ought to say, oh, you said one thing about masks in February and another in March. Well, of course, that's the nature of this thing. It was a brand new virus, a new novel coronavirus is that phrase. Novel means new. A new strain of coronaviruses that we've been battling for millenniums as human beings. And people were finding new things out. They were trying to share that with the public. So that that part of it, to me, I, I agree with Sean. You look at these these emails of Fauci. I, they're not as bad as uh, some of our conservative friends think they are. Hmm. Well, I'm going to move on. Let's turn to New Mexico for a second here, which is... Um, uh, this was the first special election since Biden's victory. Um, it's New Mexico's first district. The winner was Melanie Sansbury, a state senator. So, Sean, you're good at reading the tea leaves of these sort of little dust-ups in the political world. What, if anything, do you take away from the results? Yeah, I don't understand the kind of conventional wisdom emerging from election Twitter is that this is actually a pretty good result for Democrats because uh, Stansbury, if you look at two-party vote share, uh, did a little bit better than Biden did. This illustrates a problem with two-party vote share in partisan lean, um, which is which is that you're, you're assuming when you do that that the that the third party votes. Two-party vote is the vote share that eliminates the third parties. Uh, and so, if you have a race that's fifty-forty with ten percent going to third parties, you say, "Well, that's really—I'm um, going to do the math wrong in my head—but that's really like a fifty-six forty-four win for the party." 
the problem is that assumes that the third parties would have voted proportionally if there hadn't been uh, third parties. And if you look, normally that's a decent assumption, but if you look at the third party candidates in this race, uh, there was a former Republican statewide office holder, one of four uh, people who have been elected statewide in this century who was running as an independent. Um, and then there was a libertarian. In other words, there were three conservative slash right of center candidates splitting that vote. The fact that uh, Stansbury got about Biden's vote share in this district um, is probably more neutral uh, for Democrats than good. Um, and if you want to tell a story about how it's bad, this is a majority Hispanic district. You know, the fact that there wasn't a big erosion uh, in Republican vote share here or, or right of center vote share here actually, to me, suggests that, you know, some of the gains that Trump ha- Trump achieved uh, among Hispanics uh, ha- haven't eroded like some people suspect. And now it also has the largest share. The district also has the largest share of uh, college educated voters in the state. So the fact that there wasn't any erosion for Biden here, like we saw in the Texas special election a couple months ago, is some good news for the Democrats. But on balance, this looks more like a wash to me uh, than, than the good news that it's been uh, spun as. If we're still in basically a 2020 environment, um, that suggests to me that when you take into account redistricting and and just kind of normal drop off in Democratic vote share, you know, you're probably not going to get a wave election reading the tea leaves right now, but you don't need a wave election for Democrats to lose the House and Senate. So the first district that includes Albuquerque, uh, it's a very blue district uh, in general. Biden won it by, I think, 23 points. She won it by 25. So, but Sean, as Sean points out, there are independent candidates that might have made those numbers slightly different if they hadn't been in there. I guess that's what, what you're yeah. saying. Yeah. If she won by, if Biden won by 23 and she won by 25, but there's other conservative ish candidates that are taking four or 5% of the vote, I, I think you read that as a wash. So, Carl, you know, there are a couple other elections coming up. You've got the New Jersey governorship. You've got the um, Virginia governorship, I guess. So those are the sort of two other ones we're looking at. So when you look at this, and and Sean referred back to uh, the special elections in Texas, uh, where the Republicans did quite well, what are you seeing? How do you read the tea leaves? Well, uh, I'm going to cop out there because I want to know what Sean thinks is going on in Virginia. Uh, I I live there. And Sean lives in Ohio, and he knows more about it than I do. But uh, let me just, I, yeah, I don't think that Mexico thing is a bellwether at all. These, a special election in a, dependent, in a gerrymandered district that always goes for one party doesn't ever tell us much. But the, Virginia has told us things in the past, and there have been big swings there. Um, you know, four years ago, you, they, this guy Ralph Northam was elected after running kind of a nasty campaign. He seemed... Uh, kind of a benign, harmless guy, but he ran a very, as I say, an ugly campaign, won, and then, you know, I don't know, was a year later, months later, when was it, Sean? He shows up in his yearbook in a clown outfit or blackface. He never 
He never he never said which guy he was, Sean. We 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 think with the circumstantial evidence is he was the one in blackface because he tried to moonwalk at a press conference where he denied he was a racist and said he loved Michael Jackson. So his his wife jumped in to tell him that moonwalking was probably not a good idea at that moment. <laughs> right. And 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 then the, the lieutenant governor seemed poised to take over. Every ranking Democrat in the country, including uh, Joe Biden, said that Ralph Northam should step down. Then uh Justin Fairfax was accused by two women by name of forcing himself on on them sexually years earlier, and he he's still never resigned, but he was not a viable candidate after that. And what Virginia got out of that was not a Republican governor or a moderate Democrat, but Ralph Northam veering hard to the left and uh, trying to get Virginia school children to read Ta-Nehisi Coates and um, leading an effort to to revoke the death penalty in Virginia, both of which has happened. So even though I live in Virginia, the politics there are changing and they're, they're not easy to follow, but it's becoming a democratic state, I think. So, so, but with that, I'll turn it over to Sean. What do, what do you think is going to happen? What's, what do you see in the governor's race there? So I'm going to be a little mealy mouth, but the, my bottom line is that this is now a democratic leaning state. And so in a situation where Joe Biden has a 53% approval rating or whatever it is, the Democrats are probably going to hold it. Um, the caveats to that are uh, Republican. And I will say on the bigger picture, it's pretty clear that Northam kind of made a deal with the devil, right? Like I get to stay as governor. I don't have to resign, but like basically the left is going to get whatever it wants. Like that's, that's the price. I don't resign in disgrace. I become, you know, it's as if Michael Dukakis became governor of Virginia. Um, and the state is probably blue enough now that, 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 the state can support that. Um, the the caveats to that, though, are that you know Republicans probably nominated their strongest possible slate, right? Like you have a, a sane nominee for governor, you have a sane nominee for attorney general, you have a very conservative nominee for lieutenant governor, but she uh, doesn't seem to have E.W. Jackson style baggage, right? And she's a black woman, uh, which adds some much needed diversity uh, to that ticket. Uh, you know, and this is still. Fundamentally, the state that elected Bob McDonnell by almost 20 points uh, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, that almost elected Ken Cuccinelli, the guy who wanted to ban no-fault divorce, uh, you know, just eight years ago. So there is room for reversion to mean this is a ticket that can win, but they're probably going to need an assist from the national environment. If I can jump in, I, I actually have a question also for Sean on on um, going back to New Mexico. And, um, you know, I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, and, and Arizona at the time was, um, you know, a very red state. And New Mexico was a sort of, you know, uh, tipping state would go one way or another, you know, purple, purple state. And um, that that's no longer the case. Now Arizona's purple. New Mexico is pretty reliably blue. Um, and I wonder to what extent that has anything to do with migration from um, California. Uh, this has been a big question, whether people escaping liberal places that have failed uh, are going to bring their voting patterns with them to the conservative states they move to. And I don't know the answer to that question, but I hope that Sean does and he can illuminate it for me. 
Yeah, a lot of people look at people uh, emigrating from California, emigrating from New York, uh, and say, well, these people are prepared, are are going to turn Idaho slash New Mexico slash Texas uh, slash Florida blue. Um, And that's only true if the people who are emigrating are a random sample uh, of the state as a whole. But of course, they aren't, right? Like... It, it, it is mostly uh, the, the people who emigrate are relatively better off, uh, relatively more suburban, relatively more conservative uh, than the state as a whole. Um, so on balance, I'd say they probably make the states and districts more conservative. Uh, the problem that you have, and I think the single big, biggest problem the Republican Party has right now is that these kind of upper, not upper class, because those folks have been progressive for a long time, but up, kind of upper middle class suburbanites are trending away from the party. Uh, so it's not clear that Republicans in these states are getting the same bang for the buck from uh, uh, emigration or immigration for those states uh, that they would have gotten, say, a decade ago. Well, Carl, I want to widen the lens here just a little bit, um, because there was this really interesting article that uh, we ran this morning on RCP. It caught my eye. It was written by Joel Kotkin, who I always find interesting. He brings a lot of data to his analysis. He's a great writer. And he says there's a growing revolt against progressivism, and it's coming from the middle class. So here's part of what he says. He says, um, this is, I'm Reading from his article, he says, the current focus on systemic racism, coupled with a newfound and heavily enforced cultural conformism, and the obsessive focus on a never-ending litany of impending climate emergencies, are less likely to pass muster with most of the middle class, no matter how popular they are with the media, academics, and others in the progressive corner. And this new middle-class rebellion is being bolstered by a wide-ranging intellectual rebellion by traditional liberals against the left's dogmatism and intolerance. Indeed, what we're about to see has the potential to reprise the great shift among old liberals that had them embracing Reagan in reaction to the left's excesses of that generation. A lot, lot of meat there. What, what, do you, what do you make of it? Well, Joel, Joel is a, grew up as a, a liberal when that meant you, you know, doesn't mean exactly what it means today. And he's a centrist guy. He's got some libertarian tendencies. He's a thoughtful, he's a demographer and a writer. He helped run the Center for the West for a long time. I've known him for three or four decades. He's an interesting thinker. But but that article strikes me he, he is a little bit, that's what Joel thinks. I'm not sure that's what these voting blocks will think. You know, um, there's a lot of pressure on uh, middle class voters they don't they don't like being told that you know driving a car is evil but they are starting to buy teslas in you know uh you, it's hard to find one uh, in california they, they can't make them fast enough so the the this environmentalism uh is becoming part of the fabric of the democratic party will that drive people from the democratic party or will they just accept it i i don't know the answer to that this actually question you asked is tied into something um, something Sean and you were just discussing a moment ago. There's a, a third guy who was in our little triumvirate uh, back in my California days, Joel Garrow, uh, who edited both Joel and I. I've edited Joel at Real Clear Politics. But Joel Garrow and I had a dis- often talked about what Sean was talking about. When people move from California to Arizona or Nevada or, you know, New York to North Carolina, or, you know, Michigan to Alabama. Do they, do they absorb the, the politics and the mores of the, of the place they've moved to? 
or do they bring their voting patterns with them? And it, it's complex. And as Sean said, we're not always talking about the same people. But if you live in Nevada, which doesn't have, have an income tax, you uh, and, and Joel Kotkin's written about this, you resent people coming from California because their income taxes are so high. And then voting for candidates for local and state office who are going to raise their taxes. And it's an understandable resentment. Um, on the other hand, you know, you know, when people go, uh, there are New Yorkers uh, who would never have voted for Republican, you know, in New York, but they moved to they moved to a Sunbelt state to Texas and they end up voting for the, the sort of local establishment. And that's the Republicans. So it, it works both ways. But I don't see any great movement out of the Democratic Party because of these policies. There is going to be a counter, a counter rebellion a, a, to to this dogmatic political correctness that um, that is illiberal, not liberal. That you know, you can't say this word. You, if you said it twenty years ago, you're fired. If you said it when you're thirteen, you can't go to college. That's already starting. But I, I don't think that changes the fundamental thing that I see, which is that the two political the, the Democrats are holding their own. Uh, people who are not affiliated are growing, and the Republican Party shrinking. I don't see any sort of macro. I don't see data that count that counters that. Even though I respect and like Jill Kotkin, but I, I'm I'm a little skeptical. But Eric, you, you're a you're a student of the Reagan era. As a matter of fact, I think I think I met you originally when we were both here at the beginning of the Reagan uh, years. And and what Kotkin sort of you know references the sort of Reagan rebellion as being sort of you know the, uh, this being sort of an echo of that. I mean, you do see with these school boards and the sort of this movement against teaching critical race theory, um, this sort of populism boiling up at a very local level that reminds me somewhat of sort of early roots of the moral majority and, and uh, which had a lot to do with education. People, people kind of forget that, but that was, that was one of the things that sort of really motivated the Christian right to sort of get involved in politics. Um, so what do you think, Eric? I think one of the things that's going to be a driving factor in in how people um, react to progressivism going forward um, is whether progressives maintain this notion that has been very much up front in the critical race theory of sort of race being the original sin uh, of America. And like uh, a theological notion of original sin, there's there's no getting rid of it, and um, so you have a, a a progressive policy that basically says, however much you may try, however hard you may try to um, not be racist, um, to treat all people equally and well, um, you're still racist, and that's because it's baked into the cake. Uh, of America. It's baked into you as an American. And my guess is that people, after a little while, grow tired of being accused of something that they can't do anything about. Um, that as a political movement, you've got to give people something that they can latch on to, that they feel they've improved society or they've improved themselves in some way, they've become better people, um, and that there will be frustration um, building behind this notion that what, however much you may try, you don't become a better person. You're still as guilty as you were in the first instance. So, Sean, what do you think? 
there was a great tweet, and I'm trying to find it. I retweeted it uh, a week or two ago, uh, but it was this guy saying, every time I want to be a Republican and protect my wealth, they, and I won't say what he actually said, they say nice things about Trump, and I'm back on the bus sitting with socialists uh, as they complain about white people. Um, and I think for a, a, the segment of society being discussed here, there's a lot of truth to that, right? Like there's a tension uh, being pointed out uh, by Kotkin that, that or there, Kotkin only points to half of the tension, uh, which is that, yeah, I, I don't think the, the people in the suburbs are excited about uh, some of the, the racial stuff being developed on the left. They aren't excited about the rise of socialism within the Democratic Party. But what Kotkin ignores, uh, and I think a lot of people making this argument ignore, is that the GOP's populism, you know, the, the appeal uh, to working class whites, which is why they get 70% of the working class white vote now, costs them among the suburbanites. And it's not like there's an obvious solution to this. Part of the problem with political coalitions in a, a large, diverse, transcontinental empire like our own is that you, you can't make happy one everyone happy. You can't be a, uh, a party uh, of everyone. So I, I think I think Kotkin's right that there's some disenchantment uh, with the Democratic Party um, because of this. But at the end of the day, you know, as long as the economy continues to grow, uh, as long as Biden is kind of this, you know, maintains his positioning as kind of this happy grandfatherly figure that doesn't rock the boat too much, um, you know, th- this stuff isn't going to pay dividends in a massive revolt uh, against the Democratic Party. Now, look, if Biden stands up uh, and says, "Hey, I think I think we should t- we should uh, be teaching," um, you know anti-racism in schools and makes that the focus of his State of the Union address, then yeah, there, there, there's going to be a revolt and they're going to have trouble. But I think Biden's handlers have been smart enough not to have him do that. He won't do that. And to the extent it's being pushed, it's going to be pushed at the local level or, or by sub-sub-sub-cabinet of officials. Andy, can I can I add one thing to that? I, I agree with everything that, that Eric and Sean said, but I, I want to make a differentiation between the theological aspect of critical race theory and some of the 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 nuttier stuff you know you're white so you're a racist period full stop uh the whole country was built on racism racism uberalis anti-racism all this kind of this dialectic it's it's more like a catechism people are going to get tired of that and it's not sustainable and it's not even true but the other half of critical race theory is an exploration of this country's past that explains some of the racial disparities now so if you live in Tulsa, Oklahoma, or, or Oklahoma City, anywhere in Oklahoma, you say, well, why, why isn't there a larger black middle class? Because Is it because the uh, out-of-wedlock births and a lack of uh, value of education? Um, or is it because, oh, there was a vibrant middle class and we bombed it out of existence 100 years ago and we, we destroyed their whole neighborhood? These are not questions... To ask these questions is not to make yourself sort of a, 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 a you know identity politics kook. It's to look at history squarely. Well, you know why are these black these neighborhoods in Chicago all black? Is it because you know self segregation and a lack of initiative in the black community, or is it because the um, federal government demanded um, 
that new neighborhoods be segregated in a series of, of you, Richard Rothstein, I think is his name, wrote a book about it. He writes for Reason Magazine. He's not a left-wing kook. Um, there were these policies that you had to build. You had to have covenants to get FHA loans. Those covenants excluded blacks. The highway department was building highways that separated neighborhood and walls between them. And blacks in Chicago and many other cities, St. Louis, San Francisco, you name were walled off uh, from whites. Deliberate government policy. I think to look at these things is to is to face facts squarely. And so, and then when P, and that turns into discussions about reparations, which strikes many suburban white voters as crazy, but maybe it isn't crazy. So I think what we have to do with critical race theory and anti-racism is separate, if you will, the bullshit from the history. And some of the history is real and it's it's damning. And you know, facing up to it probably is necessary for this country to progress. So I wanted to add that thought. Yeah. Let me just jump in. This is almost a side note, but I think it's important. Um, you know, what we use the term critical race theory is becoming one of those things like white nationalism or socialism, Marxism, uh, where it means one thing very narrow in the academy. Um, and it means when it's becoming something, though, that in popular discourse is thrown around so widely that it almost doesn't resemble uh, what the original incantation was, right? Like you can use critical race theory narrowly in the Kendi X term or, or Derek Bell or whomever. Uh, but, you know, realistically, it's now being applied to a, a category of almost anything relating to race that is left of center gets labeled with this critical race theory label. And, and I, I agree with Carl. I, I, if you're going to use the term that, broadly, then some aspects of critical race theory are good. Um, and I don't think the term should be used that broadly. I think it should be used for a, a pretty narrow subsection uh, of our racial dialogue. Um, of course, I don't get to determine what the popular discourse is. That's just kind of my, my, my two cents. That I, I think a lot of the original critical race theory stuff is fairly invidious, um, but uh, as as broadly as it's being termed or being used, uh, I think you know some some of the stuff like Carl said is just an honest uh, uh, assessment of our past. I, I went to high school in Oklahoma. Um, I had a cl entire class on Oklahoma history, uh, and the Tulsa race riot was completely missing from the text. I never heard of it until I probably was in law school. Um, and, and so, you know, there, there are some, I don't know if I go as far as Carl as to say we need to have reparations. I think there's all kinds of problems with that. Uh, but an honest accounting of history uh, is necessary for us to formulate honest policies and to, at the very least to understand each other. Eric, uh, last word. Well, I, I think on this question of critical race theory, um, where it becomes problematic is the notion that built into um, critical race theory is that you are an activist and you are pursuing activism of, of some sort. Um, and I think less contentious is just theory, which is doing doing serious history um, of of the kind both Carl and Sean have um, have suggested where we try to understand uh, where we are, how we got there, um, in a way that isn't tied to um, ideological movements. 
and uh, but is instead tied to you know sort of honesty and um, uh, and sort of a, a clear-eyed um, assessment of what has gone on. Well, we could talk about critical race theory all day, um, but uh, unfortunately we can't. So I want to thank Carl Cannon, Eric Felton, Sean Trendy. We're here Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays, so bookmark this podcast. Check back often. As always, I encourage you to go to Real Clear Politics, read one article from a writer or publication with whom you disagree. You can check out the Joel Kotkin article we've been talking about. You can see one of Eric's recent pieces there on uh, Real Clear Investigations. If you haven't, you should subscribe to Carl Cannon's Morning Note. It's a free newsletter. It comes in your email every day. I can't start my day without it. You shouldn't either. And you can sign up for it on Real realclearpolitics.com. And so thanks for listening. Until next time, for Real Clear Politics, I'm Andrew Walworth.